Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by SchoolofLaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the podcast. Rick Roberts here today, episode 240. Yikes. We're going to talk about cancel culture and how you can counterattack cancel culture a little bit and what it is and why we're talking about it. Uh, it's because it's just in the news constantly now. And there are things that are uh, slightly valid about the culture. However, there's a lot of things comics are self-inflicting on themselves uh, when it comes to cancel culture, and we'll talk about that today. I did want to say a quick thank you to our Patreon sponsor for this episode, Mike James, out there in sunny Arizona. I hear it's opened back up 100% capacity so i hope you're having some good shows out there and doing some cool things thanks mike for supporting the podcast for quite a while now super appreciate that and if you didn't listen to last week's episode or get the insider tips newsletter hey if you're not on that newsletter list all you have to do is send me an email schooloflabs at gmail.com and ask to be added to it uh, if you didn't know about what happened on the podcast last week or in the newsletter, we've got a crisp and clean comedy competition that has taken place here this month where you can submit a one-minute or less clean comedy clip with an audience preferred and uh, shoot that to me at schooloflaughs at gmail.com. Uh, before, I'm going to extend the deadline because we've had some people saying they're just now getting back to audiences. So before June... 17th. That's the new deadline, June 17th. Get that into me, and I will uh, take that comedy clip. As long as it's easy to hear, understand the words, and it's clean, I'll include that on a future episode along with the others that have been submitted, and we've got some good ones already. And there'll be chances for people to vote on their favorites. The top three will get some cool prizes. Uh, I think they're cool. They're uh, things that I can offer you from School of Laughs. One is a hour roundtable coaching call with you and the other winners, a private call. You'll get a free silver edition of the online writing course and a free one-year subscription to Club 52, which is a weekly email with comedy challenges uh, that apply to your writing, performance, and business aspects of comedy, and a quarterly Zoom hangout with the Club 52 gang as well. So all of that information you can find out about at schooloflast.com. Go to the podcast section and see the last podcast, and the show notes has all that information right there. Or just go back and listen to episode 239. All right, well, today I did want to talk just a little bit about cancel culture. You know, just the term itself is such a negative-sounding thing, and it's been in the news quite a bit lately. And we're going to talk about how it affects comedy and comedians and what comedians can do to kind of counterattack the cancel culture or at least diffuse it from the inception. And, you know, this won't be a definitive discussion on the topic. I'm just one guy with my own opinion. But I hope it gets your comedy brain engaged a little bit. And I would be extremely delighted if you followed up with your point of view in an email to me at schooloflaughs at gmail.com or just go to the schooloflaughs.com website. And go to this podcast episode, and at the bottom, there's actually a place where you can enter comments on the episode. And I'd love for you to do that as well. That way other listeners can see what you're thinking and get involved in a dialogue, a discussion around this topic of cancel culture. You know, what is cancel culture and how does it apply to comedy? I think we should define both of those things first before we get into it. 
you know, comedy as defined by the dictionary, by Webster's, the King James Version, <laughs> is a work that is light, humorous, or satirical in tone that usually contains a happy resolution of the thematic conflict. I agree with that definition pretty much. Uh, notice that it says usually contains a happy ending. It doesn't say it has to contain, nor does it say it has to contain a resolution that pleases everybody. That's comedy, folks. You don't have to like it. You just have to laugh at it. And what is cancel culture? Well, Webster's defines it as a way of behaving in society or group, especially on social media, in which it is common to completely reject and stop supporting someone because they have said or done something that offends you. Sticks and stones, friends. In a cancel culture, we appoint ourselves the arbiters of right and wrong and also the judge and jury. And because of, and thanks to social media, we get to dole out the punishment publicly. Oh, man. So a couple of moving parts here in cancel culture. One is that, uh, you know, if you are offended by something that you completely stop supporting and reject and uh, protest, basically, the thought or the words that made you offended. And that a lot of it is due to social media. A lot of people will take to social media because they don't have friends in real life anymore to sit around the fire and discuss topics with. They have to go online where they've never met anybody that they're a friend with and their other 450 friends on Facebook or Twitter and just go out and just try to stomp something out that they don't think is right. And you know what? More power to you. See where it gets you. But in reality, this isn't anything new. Comedy has really always straddled the lines of free speech and accountability. And the first, you know, free speech gives us the green light for all of our jokes. We get to say whatever we want because we have the freedom of speech here in America. But the second, accountability, eh, that's a red light that kind of slowly creeps in more and more as we get to, I don't know if we're more cultured or more aware, or some people call the term woke, which I hate that term, so I won't use it again in this episode. But, you know, there is accountability with free speech. You just can't yell fire in a crowded theater, right? And this has been around for a while. Uh, comics have battled it from, I mean, from pre-Lenny Bruce to George Carlin to Kevin Hart, Lewis Black. Comics take on this uh, idea of a cancel culture and try to fight back the best they can, you know? Um, and you kind of you have a risk when you fight back at something as big as a culture of cancellation you get the risk of silence, rejection, booze from the audience. And, uh, you know, you have to really know what you're talking about before you hit the stage to avoid a lot of this stuff. Uh, it popped up recently here in the news in a, a last week, last Tuesday, in a New York Post article. Billy Crystal, I actually didn't know he was still alive. No, just kidding. 73 years old, though, still going strong. And he's walked a, a pretty delicate line over the years between uh, being... On the, you know, he's very much uh, Hollywood, is what I'm trying to say. So he's always had to kind of dance around things, and he's hosted the Oscars and the, the awards and stuff like that many times. So he's he's kind of deft in that field. But you know, he said even it has turned the entertainment industry into a minefield, and I get it. I don't like it. I understand it. But I just keep doing what I'm doing, and that's all you can really do right now. It's a totally different world than it used to be, but it doesn't mean you have to like it. And I thought, you know what, I'm kind of with you right there. Just because things change doesn't mean they're right or wrong or that you have to like it. But you should be aware enough to acknowledge that things are changing. And uh, John Malkovich, not a comedian, 
but an actor who has done some funny stuff, was quoted in the New York Daily News recently as saying, What's funny yesterday becomes illegal today, and the person uttering it must be canceled, according to society. He said, Outrage culture is as strong as it is toxic. Part of what makes comedy difficult is also the tidal wave of idiocy that can be created on social media in one day. It's an outrage mob. Man, that kind of sums it up right there, too. You know, there's an instant knee-jerk reaction to something that's usually taken out of context or misconstrued, not always, but sometimes. And once that ball of rejection gets going on social media, man, people either pile on or get run over and flattened by it. And uh, a lot of times it's the second, the latter of the two that happens. And it's, it's I mean, it's, it affects every comic in one way or the other. Some more... Uh, well-known, obviously, then others get affected by it, and they have maybe more of their career at risk. And uh, even the open micer walks into an environment in a lot of places where cancel culture is very prevalent. So you just kind of need to know what's going on. Um, a lot of big-name comics, obviously, Billy Crystal, Dave Chappelle, uh, Adam Carolla on his podcast announced that Eddie Murphy, they've all kind of condemned cancel culture because it's limiting it feels like it's suffocating towards comics, you know, in, in a certain way. It's it's preventative from us getting our last. But also sometimes it comes back around because we really weren't thinking about what we were saying and didn't even realize that there would be pushback. I mean, Kevin Hart faced it after someone uncovered a couple of tone-deaf 10-year-old tweets. He cranked out uh, homophobic tweets, but I'm sure his intention wasn't to single out a group of people and and say they're horrible. He was just kind of using that to address a couple of things, but but still, not not uh, not thoughtful comments in a tweet. And tweets are their own thing; they live on. People dig them up. So you know, he lost his opportunity to host the Oscars because of it. He apologized. He tried to make things right, and I think he's back, kind of in neutral, if not progressive, territory right now, moving forward. Um, and it's been around, but you know, before Kevin Hart, uh, Roseanne Barr, she lost uh, some gigs on her show because she's some of the stuff she said off stage, and that's a whole another ball of wax that I don't think I want to get into today. But you know, if you're a person who says things off stage that people take offense to, they're just as likely to cancel supporting you and your comedy than if you'd said something right there in the show. You know, your behavior all around is uh, is going to be noticed these days. People have cell phones, they have uh, long memories, sometimes they remember the right things you say, sometimes they remember the wrong things you say, but it's really hard to escape cancel culture. So you do have to walk a slightly more well-defined line. I wouldn't say necessarily careful, but you have to know what you're saying and know the impact it can have. And, you know, when I'm talking about this with comedians, it's also for actors, obviously, political cartoonists, animators, sketch or improv actors, musical comedians. We all face the same scrutiny from the general public. Ricky Gervais once said, you know, creators create and those who can't create criticize. And so that might be part of it. These people wish they could have more success. You've got it. So they're going to take you down. So at least you don't have yours. But the solo stand-up comedian is a lonely solo target and when you're on stage especially the words you say come back to you and my my biggest beef with the whole cancel culture attitude is when did we start expecting every human to be perfect all the time in every way every day 
I mean, the fact that we are humans, by definition, uh, to me, as I'm, I'm a Christian, who's, which that is just an admission of not being perfect, you know, humanity is, is, has failed uh, since day one. So when did these other failures of people, no, nah, yeah, I'm not trying to be snarky or anything, but we're all failed people. So what gives one group a right to tell another group that they're not right? I don't get it, you know, and don't even get me started on how flawed you have to be to even become a stand-up comedian in the first place. I mean, our whole point of origin is being someone who doesn't fit in or see things the way other people do and or even worry about the risk of rejection because the rejection is kind of what drove us to stand-up comedy in some form or fashion probably so that we could speak out and get noticed. So it's uh, it's it's a crazy, crazy thing to be a stand-up in today's culture. But here's here's the thing. Stand-up comedy specifically, it's one person's thought, one person's opinion, and one person's attempt to make you laugh. Or, or I really should say your opinion, your thought, and your attempt to make someone laugh. And that last one is the most important. It should be about trying to get people to laugh. You know, stand-up comedy is an art form with its primary focus on generating laughs, but it has evolved over time into an art form that can also be used to address social issues, advance one's agenda, or potentially lead others to change their thought or alter their beliefs. And that evolution is the tricky part because that's what is rubbing up against the edges of cancel culture because now you're taking your belief system and challenging someone else's or challenging someone else's with yours. And when you start taking a stance against things, that tension can lead to some friction, some pushback. So if you craft the joke with the purpose of generating a laugh first and making it a point to change somebody's opinion maybe second, I think there's less chance for confrontation because you've diffused the confrontation with very specific humor. So let me say that in a different way. If you focus on pushing buttons and challenging others before you know how to do that with the laugh, then you've undermined the primary focus of your comedy and you've left yourself subject to criticism. So you really have to craft your material in a way that you know is going, it's almost like the, uh, the flavor helps the medicine go down kind of deal. The, the laughter is the flavor. The medicine is what you're trying to get across and change somebody's point of view. And, you know, people have different ones. And, and obviously, uh, I'm not saying that you should support somebody on their platform if they're spewing hate or violence or lies or misinformation. You know, you don't want to be that person and, and you don't want to support that person, obviously. Um, and you could make the argument that lies and misinformation is kind of what comedy fuels itself on in some ways. I mean, there's always that exaggeration of truth, right, or the omission of it to get a laugh. But as an audience member, when something makes you upset, you really have one of three paths to take if something gets under your skin. You've got uh, a variety of things. And, and going from least confrontational to the most, it's you know simply disregard the, the statement made by the offender and move on with life. George Carlin once uh, said something to the effect of, if you don't like what you hear on the radio, use the knob. <laughs> so if you don't like it, you could just disregard it and move on. Uh, if it really gets under your skin and you feel convicted, you could obviously confront the offender, uh, but I would say in private first. And then if that doesn't work, you go public with it. And that's kind of the way the cancel culture goes. But I think they kind of skip that first step where you just disregard the offensive remark and look at it as a joke, and they go right into confrontation. And those are three probably the most common paths to address somebody that has moved your needle a little bit. But I think there's a fourth path that exists, and it's definitely the road less taken. And that's listen 
to the person who offended you and filter that joke, that punchline through your beliefs. And then first, ask why you have that belief in the first place. And second, is that belief still valid? Boy, there's a refreshing original thought, right? Maybe listen to someone else. Filter that joke through your beliefs and ask why you have that belief in the first place. And is that belief still valid? If we did that, I think some of the cancel culture would fall apart because maybe their beliefs aren't valid anymore. Or maybe they've learned more about themselves from the way they reacted to the comedian's joke than they thought. And I don't think enough people do that. I don't think enough people are thoughtful. I don't think enough people are empathetic. I don't think audiences always... uh, go that deep, certainly, but that's the problem with cancel culture. You can't completely remove yourself from learning or at least learning why somebody feels something and then ask yourself why you feel the way you do. And the people who don't take that step, you know, they fail to take that step of of self-reflection and looking inward, you know, they come up with all kinds of crazy things they think should be canceled because they haven't even taken the time to look at themselves. They're just alarmists. They're people who want to cancel somebody else's uh, opinions because maybe they don't really have a strong one themselves or don't understand their own opinion. But the thing with comedians on the flip side is if you are on stage with opinions and you're assuming that you have the correct opinion, the absolute truth or unquestionable angle on every topic you come across without digging into it and supporting it with some uh, statements in your setup and uh, kind of making that easier to swallow with your punchlines, then you're kind of selling yourself short and you're kind of inviting criticism. You don't want to assume, we all know the Saturday Night Live joke about assuming, uh, or was it Second City? I can't remember. But in short, assumption is the lowest form of communication. If you think about it, every accident, every divorce and argument is caused by an assumption that you're assuming the other person sees things the way you do and you get upset when they don't. And a stand-up comedian's job is to eliminate assumption from the joke writing process. Let me talk about that for a second. That's your job as a comedian is to eliminate assumption from the joke writing process. If you include assumption, then you're including the lowest form of communication. And if stand-up comedy is a high art form, you don't want to have the lowest form of communication as part of that art form. So three things to think about here is, one, don't assume the audience will understand your point of view. You've got to give them examples so they follow along. Don't assume your sarcasm or your point of view is enough to get the laugh. You have to have solid joke construction and a technique. And this is important. You have to have techniques to trigger the laugh in your punchline. And the greatest way, the third thing, the greatest way to eliminate assumption is to know your target. And if you don't know what your target of your joke is, it's going to be really hard for the audience to know. You know, the first time that something really appeared on my comedy radar was right when I was starting comedy in 90 or 91. I came across a George Carlin special. I think it was called Live from New York or something to that effect. But he had this routine called The Planet is Fine. I don't know if you all know that one, and if you want to stop and pause this podcast right now and go hit that up on YouTube, look up The Planet is Fine. Uh, you can watch that. If there's some language, of course, it's George Carlin, but the clip is solid, and basically, I'm not going to read his whole clip or play it for you, but uh, I'll kind of summarize it with a few quotes from the bit. Uh, Save the planet? What are the blankety-blank people kidding me? 
save the planet. We don't even know how to take care of ourselves yet. We haven't learned how to care for one another, and we're going to save the blankety-blank planet. The planet is fine. Compared to the people, the planet is doing great. Been here four and a half billion years. The planet's been through a lot worse than us, been through all kinds of things worse than us, been through earthquakes, volcanoes, plate tectonics, continental drifts, solar flares, sunspots, magnetic storms, magnetic reversal of the poles, hundreds of thousands of years of bombardment by comets and asteroids and meteors, worldwide floods, tidal waves, worldwide fires, erosion, cosmic rays, recurring ice ages, and we think some plastic bags and aluminum cans are going to make a difference? Could it be the only reason the Earth allowed us to be spawned from itself in the first place? Is it wanted plastic for itself? Didn't know how to make it? Needed us. Could be the answer to our old age philosophical question. Why are we here? Plastic. Now, I didn't do that joke complete justice uh, by any means, but you should check it out on YouTube. But in short, he challenges the concept of saving the planet. He's not saying that it's not good to recycle or to do all these things. He's not even saying that global warming isn't real or any of those things. He's challenging the concept of humans saving the planet. And not the fact that we're slowly making the planet harder to live on. The targets are ego. The ego of humanity. Think that we could actually save something as large as a planet. He's firmly planted his feet on this, and he's given you a litany of reasons that he's right. I mean, from the earthquakes, volcanoes, plate tectonics, continental drifts, all that stuff, he makes sure that you see he's thought about this, and he gives you those examples and then delivers that dynamic genius piece that is called The Planet is Fine. And he's making fun of the reason that we're saving the planet as well. It didn't come out in those quotes, but basically we're saving it. We want to save the planet because we want to save ourselves. If the planet doesn't exist, we don't have a place to live. And that's where he really lands hard on this joke. He knew what his target was. It's people. It's not the planet, even though the joke is called the planet is fine. And I tell you what, when he did that joke at the time, I was Mr. Earth Day Roberts. I mean, I'm not even kidding you. At that time, I was recycling everything, six different bins. I was shampooing my hair with eggs at one point to keep the chemicals out of the drains. I was planting trees, all this stuff. And after I heard that bit, man, I was on board with producing as much plastic for this planet as I could because maybe that's the reason I'm here. I mean, just kidding. But I mean, I really, I stopped recycling, you know? Because that was just a selfish thing I was doing is recycling. It wasn't really a helpful thing at all. And it's a pain in the butt. But anyway, just just kidding. He, he made a point and he made me rethink the way I was thinking about things. And when it's done well like that, it can have an impact. But again, that was done well by someone at that point, I would say, at the top of his game. I don't know if he got any better than that. He may have sustained that for a while. But... He had become a great craftsman of comedy. And in the hands of a great craftsman, you can make some points because you know how to back it up. At the open mic on your third time up, you might not have those skills. So you might want to look at your jokes a little more carefully and try to get there a little quicker. You know, if we're honest, really everybody, and I'm just thinking more about George Carlin here, everybody's decision every day is self-sustaining and not necessarily focused on others. I mean, at our best, in our best moments, we're trying to help others out and we're thinking of others before ourselves. But human nature is always to be self-supporting and self-surviving. You know, I mean, every politician, I don't care if you're right wing, left wing, independent, libertarian or the Whig Party. 
every politician that's ever existed, their every decision was made on making sure they still are a politician tomorrow and that they're moving up the ranks and ascending uh, to higher levels. And if you don't believe me, just, I mean, every single decision they make, when it's well thought out, we've, we've had a few presidents who maybe said some things off the cuff, but everyone that's really, every opinion that's really been major, I mean, they run polls on this. They test people. They see what they, how they react, and they change words and make things a little easier to digest. So, but all that is so they can be self-sustaining. And that's what George Carlin is basically saying there in that, uh, that big bit, which you definitely, definitely have to listen to that whole thing. So if you can make statements on stage that you can back up, you have a greater chance of making a difference, of changing the climate in the room and you have less of a chance of somebody trying to cancel you out because they don't understand your joke. I hope that makes sense. I hope I didn't lose anybody in that last last little chunk here. But in short, here's my approach to being a comedian in this current climate of cancel culture. This is like a little little mini lesson like I would tell my students in my classes. One, and this is the biggest, is you have to understand the target of every joke you write. If you do not know your target, or you think you know the target and it's not, your audiences will get lost every single time. They'll misappropriate the target. And that's when they start trying to cancel you for something you didn't even say or intend to say. And so I know some of you are probably like, what is a target of a joke? Is that the punchline? Is it? It's, it's what you're making fun of. So I'll give you a few examples from a few different kind of categories of targets. And targets can be people, places, things, ideas, mindsets, yourself, all kinds of different things. So I'll give you a few examples from a few of those. So like individually, you can make fun of yourself on stage. You're the target. I know that some people are like self-deprecating humor, man. Not everybody's Rodney Dangerfield. You shouldn't make fun of yourself. In fact, I think it was Hannah Gatsby in her one woman show declared, you don't have to lower yourself in front of others to do comedy. But I tell you what, man, it really helps. It's an easy comedy tool and approach to winning the crowd over. A little humility goes a really long way in a comedy show. So, for example, I've got one joke where I talk about me and my son. We're brushing our teeth before we go to bed one night. He's looking in the mirror at him. He looks at me. I look at him. He looks at me. I said, what's the matter, buddy? He said, Papa, I just noticed me and you, we kind of look alike. I said, yeah, yeah, what do you think about that? And he goes, what are you going to do? Right? So in that joke, am I making fun of my son? Nope. My son is making fun of the way I look. That's the target. My looks are the target in that joke. And I understand that, so I make sure I deliver that joke in a way where that's the focus and that's where the punchline lands. I make a face it's not the most attractive face to kind of hammer home the fact that, yeah, he's not that excited to be a kid who looks just like his dad. All right. So that's self-deprecating looking in. I'm the target. Sometimes the target is a group of people. Could be current people. Could be past people. Here's a joke from John Stewart where this is the case. Uh, I celebrated Thanksgiving in an old fashioned way. I invited everyone in my neighborhood over to my house. We had an enormous feast. And then I killed them all and took their land. Who do you think is the target in that joke? Is it John Stewart? Is it Thanksgiving? Is it his neighborhood? Is it the feast? No, in fact, the word, his target, isn't even a word in the joke. It's America. 
right? We're, that's how we started this country, and we celebrate that day with Thanksgiving. So he knew the target, and I think anybody who is halfway intelligent can pick that target up in that joke. Uh, maybe not the way I delivered it, but surely the way he delivers it in a live performance. Um, I'll give you another example from a group of, of people, and this is uh, – oh, I won't give too much away. So this is another example. That's one of my jokes here coming up. Uh, a lady gave birth at a Chick-fil-A. The owner said that the family can eat there for free until the child turns 14 years old. I told my wife, if that's the way it works, and if we're going to have another baby, it's going to be at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. All right, so who's the target? What group is the target in that joke? Is it Chick-fil-A? No, it's not. Is it the, the wife giving baby uh, birth? No. It's Ruth's Chris. The the cost of the food there is so high that that's where I'm going to have my baby if we're going to eat for free for 14 years. So again, I know the target. I make sure that the punchline lands on Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, and I make sure that ideally, in that joke, it is the last words of the punchline so that when I deliver the punchline, I can take a breath and the audience has a natural place to laugh. And I have fun telling that joke. Um, it's just one of those that when I, when I heard about that, I'm like, man, how can I transfer that logic to a different situation that is applicable to me and I can put myself in the joke? That's basically how I worked that one out. Um, a target can be the process that people go through. Uh, I saw an example of this in Dave Chappelle's Netflix special Sticks and Stones, which is a really strong special, again, from Dave Chappelle. Uh, I'm not going to even try to read it like him because I would come off as a horrible impressionist, but the, the words are, we didn't have school today, technically. Instead of classes, there was an active shooting drill. I had to tell my sons the truth. So listen to me. Screw that drill. If somebody comes to your school and wants to shoot it up, you're probably going to get shot. I'm just being real. Just stay low and run in a zigzag pattern. And try not to save anybody, son. Do you understand me? And these active shooting drills, you know who they're training? The shooters. So you say everyone's going to be headed in that room over there. All right, so what is the target in this joke where there is actual physical targets? It's the training. It's the drill. Because the drill, they're training the shooters who are in the school already where the kids are going to hide in the school. All right, so... Uh, touchy topic shootings school shootings sure but the target is the drills and he knows the target so he can land that punchline and then there's there's other examples i mean every everything can be a target but what i'm trying to say here is you have to make sure you know because if you don't know how in the world is your audience going to follow along and laugh at what you're intending them to laugh at if you can't make that intention clear they will have misintent. They will look for a different thing to, to uh, get angry about. And that's where the trouble starts in cancel culture. So, you know, just to wrap things up, here's here's my takes. First off, I would, I would watch great comedians. I would watch accomplished craftsmen of comedy and how they approach the harder topics and pause after every bit before it trans, you know, before they segue into the next bit. And just ask yourself, what was the target of that joke actually? And make sure you understand what you're watching so maybe you can transfer some of that learning into your own joke writing. Um, you got to know your audience, obviously. I mean, I'm a pretty dang darn gee whiz clean comedian, but there's even some jokes in my clean set that I won't do in some places because I know the content is not 
designed to get a laugh from that audience. So a big chunk of this cancel culture situation can be erased by delivering the right jokes to the right audience and taking a pass on a few that uh, you like, but maybe not by, may not be right for this audience that's in front of you. Just being smart about it. Uh, come on, comics. We're smart people. Let's be smart about our decisions. And then third, my take, run it by your friends. Run it by your comedian friends, especially any of those that are further down the pike than you are. I hate to say better, but more in, uh, more accomplished, more experienced than you are. And kind of run the idea almost like a politician. Again, runs things through a poll to see what the reaction would be. Run it by your comedian buddies to see if they can poke holes in your argument. And if they do, that gives you an opportunity to write a stronger joke or a different angle to reinforce your joke so they can't poke a hole in it anymore. So I think you owe it to your audience to be relentless in your pursuit of clarity on stage so that you have the biggest, best laughs you can possibly get and the least amount of pushback uh, from people who don't get where you're coming from. You know, if you can be solid in your stance and directing your target, you have a lot less chance of being uh, canceled by culture. So in closing, I would just say laughter is the ultimate weapon of mass acceptance. Use it. Be wise with it. Uh, be thoughtful with your jokes. You can still move needles, push buttons, but make sure you back it up like Carlin did with that litany of reasons that the planet is going to be fine. And if you do that, I think you'll be in a better situation, better spot with a less chance of being canceled. And speaking of cancels and cancellation, uh, let's go the opposite direction and make sure you subscribe to this podcast. If you haven't done that yet, push that button, go back and listen to 239 other episodes. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you haven't done that, that's going to be important, especially if you're in the crisp and clean comedy competition. And lastly, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Make sure you get all the updates on upcoming classes, coaching sessions, and all the good stuff. That's going to do it for this episode. Please do enter a 60-second clip in the crisp and clean comedy competition and get that in by the 17th of June, and I'll make sure you get on the episode. All right. Take care, everybody. Stay safe. And stay plastic. Thanks for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit SchoolofLaughs.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay money.